Was early one morning at the break of the day, the cocks were all growing, the farmer did say, Come rise, my young fellows, come rise. Well, hey there, it's the plough once again. I'm Rowan Nickel. And I'm Chris Pickering. Now, this month, we we always knew we were going to come back and do another Aussie album because the last one we did, that fantastic Midnight Oil album, Head Injuries, was such That's a right. gas. It's kind of our unwritten rule, too, is that we alternate international and then Australian records. So Great rule. Yeah. And what are we doing this time around, Chris? Well, this time, it, this is my pick. Like, last, the last podcast we did was your, your excellent choice of Grace Jones' excellent record, Nightclubbing, a record I was not actually very familiar with, and I'm very grateful for having the opportunity to become familiar with it. Uh, but this is my choice. It's an Australian record, and I'm going back into my, you know, earlier days, my early life of living in Queensland and in Brisbane in particular, and we're going to uh, listen to and discuss a record by Brisbane's favourite band, so much so that they've they've had public infrastructure, a bridge named after them. That's right. It's the Go-Betweens. And the, the album I wanted to talk about with, by the Go-Betweens was uh, probably their most underrated or kind of, you know, the album that's sort of thought of as being both hit and miss at the same time, which is Spring Hill Fair. However... It's my personal favourite. I actually really like this record. I think there's actually a surprising amount of depth to it. What out of all out of all their yeah, I, I mean, I, Sixteen Lovers Lane is sort of regarded as you know their high watermark of records, due, mainly due to its commercial success more than anything else. But uh, the fan favourite is kind of well, it's a controversial choice because it varies from fan to fan, of course. But before Hollywood, which is the record before this one. Uh, it's generally regarded as a lot of the fa- the fan favourite because it's the go betweens kind of early sound, you know, when it was that the trio of Grant, Robert, and uh, Lindy. Lindy on the drums. So, well done. so yeah. Um, but I actually really like I really like this one. It was it sort of uh, got a lot of my favourite go between songs on it. It was kind of like their their great f- flirtation with uh, being a commercial rock band. And which is ironic, considering what Sixteen Lovers Lane ended up sounding like. I think it sounds like a far more commercial record than this one. It's just in my opinion, though. We are talking, I guess, six years after this record. Now, this yeah. is '84, is it not? It is 1984. But yeah, so this is their third record. Um, yeah, well, a little, let's talk about the band a little bit. A little bit of background to the band. So the band, the Go Betweens, I was saying, the Brisbane's you know favourite musical exports. The first, besides the Saints, to actually you know be critically acclaimed and sort of dominate the 80s in a big wave. I guess you could say the Saints were the first really big band out of that alternate scene in Brisbane to come out in this in the 1970s. And the go-betweens were kind of hot on the heels of that. and um, Very much an art school uh, yeah. art school band. Yeah, well, a uni band. They both uh, were students at uh, the University of Queensland, both Robert and Grant, the two, who were the two kind of main writers and main figures behind... Um, the, the group, that is Robert Forster and Grant McLennan. And uh, Grant is sadly no longer with us, unfortunately. He passed away in 2006. I believe he had a heart attack, didn't he? Very you know? sad, yes. It was, yeah, some some natural causes died at home. Very, very sad. Very, very sad. Uh, but uh, Robert is still going. Robert's still doing his solo stuff. And uh, and a fine, fine journalist. A fine. Excellent journalist and excellent music critic as well. The, the, band, the band was kind of had their heyday. They started out as sort of this... Uh, art school punk band, uh, for want of a better term, in the in the late seventies with their first single, uh, Karen and Lee Remick, their first songs that they put out, which are great artifacts of that time. 
then eventually, you know, uh, their tactic was, is like most bands in Brisbane, they didn't feel like they could, you know, to cut a long story short, didn't feel like they could make it at home in Australia. So they ended up sending out their records to as many different places as possible. Got a little bit of interest from a label in England and promptly moved there to kind of pursue their career, which is a pretty big thing to do for a band. And they sort of were one of these you know, epitomised as being one of these Australian bands that kind of had to leave, like Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds and all of these, you know, great Australian groups that all left to go to London or Berlin to actually, you know, uh, ply their trade and make a name for themselves because they felt like the the Australian music scene was so dominated by pub rock and this the arty kind of twist on on music and what they, the song, the music they wanted to write, the lyrics they wanted to write and everything... They didn't really feel that it was much of a home for it in what was becoming an increasingly pub rock environment here in Australia. They've always been seen as kind of outsiders yeah. and felt that way too. Yeah, mm. definitely. I think, But I think it's an image that they embraced at yeah. the same time, you know. So this record, I mean, is this... It feels like this is the stab. This is, this is the first big stab at... Yeah, well, it, uh, the record before um, Spring Hill Fair was called Before Hollywood and was recorded in London and released uh, on Rough Trade uh, uh, Records, which was a, a big independent label in England at the time and was uh, had just really signed uh, probably the, the band that would make them really well known, which is a band called The Smiths. Uh, and it was a very good uh, label for the go-betweens to be associated with because of the pull that they started to have. And, and Rough Trade probably went from being a, an independent label uh, on the back of the Smiths to being, you know, one of the larger independent, almost a pseudo-major label in England at the time. So it's a huge coup for this band from this outpost. Yep. And recorded recorded in England um, at uh, and by John Brand, this producer as well, who'd uh, interestingly had had quite a bit of a commercial pedigree uh, before this. Uh, and work with uh, Backman Turner Overdrive. Yep. Can you believe a it? lot of a lot of commercial commercial kind of uh, groups uh, and. Kind of a, the story goes actually kind of a, approached Rough Trade Records and said, "Hey, I'm this commercial producer, but I want to do some more uh, artsy kind of stuff." And so they they said, "Well, we've just signed this band called the Go Betweens. How about you work with them?" And and then they went to work on this album called Before Hollywood. And uh, yeah, it was their big breakthrough, containing their what was sort of seen to be their their first big song, a song called Cattle and Kane, which was written by Grant McLean. Great song. It's kind of a, an Australian classic. It is. So, leading into that, this record had had a big degree of success. They'd left Rough Trades and, had, and actually signed with Sire Records, which is an American label headed by, you know, one of the great label men, I guess, that is seen these days, a guy called Seymour Stein. And it was a label that had sort of, you know, made itself on the back of a lot of punk alternative records in the 70s and would soon become very famous for signing Madonna amongst other people, this label. So it was soon to become very right. big. Sire was very keen for them to try and make this commercial record, that you know, to try and do this breakthrough album that would actually cross over for making them be critically acclaimed and not commercially successful to both, hopefully. And, uh, and they, just the, they had just the man in John Brand. And that was the idea. So, you know, they'd worked with John Brand before. They thought this would probably be a good idea to do this again. And so uh, they found themselves recording at Jacques Lussier's Merval Studios in France, which is sort of like the chateau 
kind of situation. There is a change in personnel in the band. There is. There's a new addition to the group. Prior to that, with before Hollywood, the band had consisted of Lindy, Lindy Morrison on the drums, uh, with Grant uh, McLennan playing bass guitar and Robert Forster playing guitar. And they've just recently added a member, a guy called Robert Vickers, who was also an Australian, and they'd added him to the group, and he uh, he joined on bass guitar, which enabled Grant to now move to guitar. So this was this album is sort of seen as being the beginnings of that musical relationship with their kind of their not necessarily dueling guitars, but kind of like um, weaving kind of guitar yeah. parts for one of a better term. Yeah. You know? Yep. All right. Well, look, I'm keen to have a listen. Let's well, let's rip it up. What's the what's the first track? The very first track is kind of you know uh, probably one of the the. The classic go-between songs, but it was interestingly enough was actually the second single from this record, and it's a song called Bachelor Kisses, written by Grant McLennan, and here it is. Lovely. Yes, you wait, the engines 
Bachelor Kisses. So Bachelor Kisses, it's shades of, you know, the 16 Lovers Lane go-betweens that we were to hear, you know, the, the commercial thing. And anyone who, who's familiar with, you know, their big hit, the uh, Streets of Your Town song, sure, which sure. most Australians probably would be, it's a reasonably ubiquitous song uh, these days in culture, particularly, you know, given the... Uh, the great retro, you know, examination that a lot of Australian music has gotten in the last few years. Uh, it's very much along those lines, this, I think. This song wasn't recorded in France? It was no, recorded it, was recorded, in it was recorded in London. And I'm not entirely sure of the sequence, actually. Um, I think whether, if it was recorded first or they recorded it afterwards. Oh. I, I feel like it was recorded afterwards, like they went, they went and re-recorded it because... Uh, they they sort of said that they recorded this song this song already and had taken it to the label and the label didn't like it. They said it needed a bridge and it didn't have the bridge and so McLennan then went back and added a bridge to it. And sure enough, it sounds tacked on. Do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd actually agree with that. I think the the bridge is a little strange. It, it's I think it works. You know, it'd work better if it wasn't such a stylistic gear change. Honestly, mm. sometimes yeah. that works in a song, yeah. but it's really. Maybe it's just because consciously I know that it's a tacked-on bit. Mm. It's the classic thing. It's 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 the thing I often hate about bridges when when people write bridges and they they go to like you know they just go to a flat seven chord or something like yeah. that you know instead of instead of actually doing something more interesting to kind of you know and the gear change is really too abrupt and it doesn't really work. And you so, don't find that here. No, not particularly. Not with this one as much. It. I, I agree with you and I don't think it, it fits as well as the rest of the song. Like there's this nice lope to it and and what it's kind of what this song in, uh, introduces interestingly is inserting these two four bars and uh, like uneven bars. It's not quite four four all the same way. The timing is different so they add in like a half a bar, a two four bar to kind of make the turnaround a little bit more uneven and it works really really well they do it a lot in there's uh, about two or three other songs they do it in so you're talking and you're talking about it as a it's with that three it's note it's purely from a phrasing note. it's a phrasing perspective it's like and dun, dun, yeah. dun, 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 get three four it's back and it's back right do you reckon that's do you reckon they're doing that um to fit that riff in, it feels like they maybe. I I don't think it's definitely a thing. Uh, you know, I, I, Grant and Robert well, were definitely just a, oh, won't definitely you? very very clever songwriters. Uh, but I don't necessarily think that they were consciously aware of that. I think it was just a phrasing thing. It felt like the right thing to cool. do for them to do it. But it, it actually it makes it really interesting, making that that having that unevenness to the phrasing and not necessarily a square four kind of feel the whole way through gives it a little bit of momentum. It it's works really, really, nice. really well. I think the tambourine really helps that mm. as well. It really helps that. Yeah. And the, the girl backing vocals and all they that. They are beautiful. It's got these, real, these really nice commercial touches in there, you know. And as the second single, as I said before, from the album, this it was actually probably the... the, the well, it was the most successful single uh, from the record. Was it? Yeah. Uh, it, didn't, it did a lot better than the first single did, which we'll listen to later. Who's playing that 12-string guitar? Uh, I, it's hard for me to tell because... I'd, I'd say it's probably Grant. Grant is kind of regarded as kind of the lead guitar player in the band. Yeah. As far as, you know, as long as I've known the band, it was always seen that way, that Grant would play a lot more of the complicated lines to Robert's more rhythmic kind of playing. Um, 
very lovely pre-chorus. They do. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, this is this is the classic go-betweens catchy thing. And in it, you actually, I think, you really find why the go-betweens struggled to find commercial success a lot. In that they weren't, and this is the first time. It's controversial for me to say it, but they weren't very good singers. They did not have captivating voices. They had good, you know, they had interesting voices and they had good voices, but. They wouldn't. They didn't have the voice of, say, uh, Debbie Harry, who was, you know, someone at the another person at the time that you know was very commercially successful, or someone like like that that could have actually put their own personality on the song. It sounds like you know it, they've got a, a very unique sound to what they're doing, but they're not strong singers at all. And I think that is probably one of the big reasons why a lot of their songs failed to gain a bit of traction, particularly in commercial radio, at least in the 80s, I think. Well said. With a, with a stronger singer, who knows, it might have actually you know, done, done a lot better commercially, at least. It feels to me like uh, there's just not enough ego in there, to be very Attitude. honest. Yeah. I, and I, 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 it's I, terrible. I, it's, it's maybe a shitty thing to say, but... But but I like ego in music. I really really do like. Yeah, and, ego. and attitude goes a long way towards selling it, doesn't it? It it, it feels it. It'd feels be really a... interesting to you know what based on what we're saying. It'd be really interesting to hear someone actually do a really strong cover version of yeah. this song and and you know potentially release it. You know, like a tribute. They have those tribute records. Yeah, someone sure. will do a go betweens tribute record be with the all these Australian artists, and you know, it, someone like a boy and a bear will have a huge hit. Anyway. Great! It's it's great. It's a great way to start to start the record. Oh no, it's excellent. It is it, what, it, it is what they do. They they are doing what they do. Yep. What's the next song? The next song is a song called Five Words. One of my favourite songs on the record. Also, probably the strangest song on the record, and maybe that's why I like it. I I don't know about strangest brother. Well, we'll, we'll go toe to toe on that one later. The other the other the, yeah the other one we're going to talk about later. But I I think that uh, this one. Musically and structurally is quite strange and it, yeah, it's well worth a listen. Let's do it. And I just say, what do you say? And I just say, what do you say? Five words, bury them, don't keep up. And I just know, what do you know? And I just know, what do you know? That pays for the angel. All right, 
It's weird, right? Yeah. It's it's cool. It's got this, it, like it's it's got this cool kind of you know the, the this brushes thing on the drums that just doesn't let up the whole way through. It keeps going the 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 whole way and and it's got this weird kind of it's sort of like being seasick. It's this weird kind of shifting back and forth, this uneasiness between those chords and and the middle eight is the only kind of break from that where it kind of has those. The nice, you know, major chords and descending patterns and stuff, and then it goes back into that weird, uneasy kind of feeling again. I kind of thought I had the uh, the the uh, the impression of rattling along on a tram, to be honest, oh, yeah. over or or a train over these tracks that are, you know, you know. Yeah, well, that made, the drums might have done that as well. Such a different drum sound to like. I don't think there's another drum drum sound like it on the album. No, it's not. It's really, and it's curious. This song. Oh, it almost sounds like this song belonged on the album before, which is kind of a little bit more indie, a little bit more of the the, the punk kind of thing. Sure. You know, it's a it's a little bit weirder, uh, but it, it works really well. I really really like the song. The lyrics are really great. They're the very well. interesting. Yeah, is they're it... probably they're probably some of the most interesting lyrics on the record as well. And it's interesting enough they only co-write on the album as well. They had they kind of had an unwritten rule whereby they you know would both contribute the same amount of songs to every record. That was the idea, and the same with the singles. The idea would generally be, to the best of my knowledge, they kind of they followed it that you know the singles would be alternate releases from each artist you know so Robert would have a single and Grant would have a single and back and forth it was fairly you know democratic equal kind of process for that it doesn't seem like it's the sort of thing that did either of them any um, disservice either no both the material is pretty strong yeah both of the material is very strong and um yeah, it's good, and it's a, it's evident of the relationship that they actually had with each other. And who's to, who's to know but them, you like, you know, how much they actually contributed, how much of the songs actually got changed in the arranging process as well. It's, you know, pretty clear to hear the, the sound of, you know, both of them in there. And I uh, like Robert singing the verses in that song, and if Grant actually wrote most of the lyrics to that, then that's kind of more evidence of that, the that uh, Robert's singing the verses and then Grant comes in with those kind of back and forth replies in the oh, in the chorus. Cool. Yeah. Look, I, I don't mind that song. It, it doesn't grab me though. It really just doesn't. I, I like it. I, I actually think it's 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 really quite cool. That, that uneasiness is really good and that rep, the repetition of it, just kind of just that steady, uneasy back and forth kind of thing uh, works really well for me in terms of actually ingrained... Like it's, it's a catchy melody that isn't particularly melodic. Sure. That's, that's what I think is yeah, actually sure. that is that is kind of it's 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 not your classic catchy melody, but because of the repetition of it, it actually really sticks in your head. Sure. I just part of the the, the problem. I mean that that middle that the bridge as well is mm. just so limp. Yeah, the bridge they, is. They limp. have not I committed to they that didn't, at all. They didn't think to, it sounds like it. oh, it's it's a, it's a it's a real shame. But oh. <laughs> it just sounds like this bleating in the background. Yeah, yeah. It just. When they commit to things and are a bit urgent, I don't mind the go-betweens when they're a bit more urgent. They get urgent on this record. This song seems to me to be about, um, you know, just uh, religious iconography. Uh, it iconography is. Um, that's essentially what it's about. The, the the chorus, you know, the five words line is a little obscure. From what I can tell, the bury them, don't keep them refers to uh, remains, like you're, you're, the remains of, uh, you know, the, it's generally, you know, it was a doctrine in the church, I think they're a little loose about it these days, but, 
if you, you know, cremate remains, it's fine to do that, but you should actually bury the remains at some point. You're not meant to kind of hang on to them at some oh. point unless they're religious relics. Oh. That's what I've gathered from it. So that's kind of, there's that sort of reference there. Yeah. And what I, I think, you know, the lyrics themselves, more what they're actually looking at is kind of, you know, I think talking about that the permanence of the church, but also also the you know referring to praise to the vision that pays for the angel coins and communion ring like a halo all bright you know referring to you know the i guess the the financial power and the to a certain extent the corruption that's part of the church as well the very lutheran aspect to the lyrics is is he he sort of saying look you don't you don't need sanctified. Yeah, well, maybe that that's sanctified. it. The, the bury them, don't keep them is actually kind of pointing out the hypocritical nature of the church. Is why are you why are you gathering all this money when you can't take it with you? There's that whole point. cool. Yeah, thanks for clearing. <laughs> well, that. you know, just our, our basic you know lyrical sleuthing. Very good. Maybe we should have a segment on the show where we actually have. A lyrical sleuthing segment talking it'll, about lyrics. It'll be it'll be all your segment. <laughs> I, I, I have a suspicion. I will actually go on the record as saying the lyrics of the band is almost, you know, always very very strong, very high quality. They put a lot of thought into their lyrics and into what they're doing. Groovy, uh, and that's great. I mean, that's you know something that adds to the permanence of the sound. Anyway, on to the next song. Maybe the next song is the old way out. This is a Robert Forster song. Let's uh, let's have a bit of a look at it. Eh? Yep. sound unfair but <laughs> I'm a guitar player and I can't stand the guitars on that really song no hmm. I think they're all just really it's that no ego thing oh, no it's just the way they play I guess I I I, I think that outro is really superfluous I, I, I don't like the song at all I'd, I'd, I'd agree that the song is about a minute too long I don't think it, it really has anything to add to the situation 
I actually really like the idiosyncratic guitar playing of these guys, though. I, I don't think it's it's something that you would actually hold up on any kind of technical, you know, pedestal. But there's no by, mystery by about stretch. it either. There's no there's no spunk about it. Like, I, I at least with... Uh, all right, I'm, I'll, this is the last time I mentioned television. Television is idiosyncratic guitar playing as well, but there's yeah. real, some real ambition there. They're a different band. They're a different band, okay, yeah. and I'll stop. A but, big influence on the go-betweens, though. Like, I like, I, you know, but I'm, I'm like power and majesty yeah. and sex appeal. That's mm. why I play guitar. That's what I love about guitar playing. It's... Well, it's an interesting song in there. It's actually probably a little high up in the order for me, like the se- in the sequencing thing. I Structurally, it's kind of interesting. It has its moments. And it has... The the glam beat is certainly probably the predominant, you know, kind of sound that you've got there, that big thumpy... Doom, and they're panned... The, you know, the, the, the yeah. hats are panned on one... Uh, the, you know, and, and the toms are on the other yeah. side, which is cool. That, that big kind of sound... But really, that's kind of the song's main characteristic in a lot of ways. And then you've got this sing-songy, pub-like kind of chorus, you know, the old way out is now the new way in, which is just kind of fairly repetitive. And as a chorus, it works because it's catchy, but at the same time, it doesn't really it doesn't really add too much to it. And Why are they both singing the same note? Well, maybe. I mean, that's to emphasize the sing-songiness of it, I think. I don't know. I feel like it's something that I, you know, I even though the guitars is something that you single out, I feel like the whole thing probably could have had another, you know, another good edit or two to actually try and make the most out of it. I think it's a dull song, man. And and I wouldn't, I wouldn't say dull, but I would say, I would say it's it's definitely not reaching its full potential. Well, anyway, I don't know why it's number three, but the less said for me, the better. All right, let's move on to the next one. You've never lived. You've never lived, which is a uh, a song by uh, Robert. Again, we've got. Uh, Essentially, what's uh, three Robert songs in a row here? Great. The wrist was hers, every bit hers. I gave her this warning. Never love a man who has no sister, clings to your breast, and only you know him. And right here's for me. Right here's for me. Right here and nowhere else. As collectors.
Oh yeah, that's more like it, man. Yeah, that's that's definitely that's more up your alley, and a, a good vocal performance as well from from Robert, it sung with you know that attitude you were talking about before that is fairly easy to dismiss in a lot of the you know the go betweens kind of sound or the the lack of the attitude I should say it's definitely present there that that attitude you know the snarl in the in the vocals and and the attitude with the guitar those pounding guitars in there and uh, yeah it works really well I uh, that would have been fantastic live that song mm. God it would have been good imagine watching that in the early eighties just <laughs> well it would have been great I. Uh, and look, honestly, it's not terribly imaginative, um, not a terribly imaginative melody or phrase no. or phrasing, apart from the um, apart from the luckiest charm. That's yeah. really cool. But it just makes it work. Yeah, that hesitancy and that nervousness, really, yeah, it's mm. it's a really it's a really pulled, taut sort of song. Yeah, really, um, and strange bass sound. The bass and the drums are just not; they don't feel like they're locking together yeah. at all. It and is, normally that would really annoy strange. me. There's only a few points in the songs where it really locks together. And there's a lot of higher notes on the bass, particularly in the chorus. And so in the, the parts where there's a lot of low-end presence, in the chorus where you'd think it would really kind of drive that home, he goes higher up on the neck. And it's yeah. sort of... It's, it's really strange. It's sort of the opposite to what you'd expect it to do. But, I mean... That's, but that's where it comes together. That's, yeah. that's the bits where, where the drums and the bass yeah. lock in. Mm. Um, I don't mind that song at all. I think that's... I think that's cool. Yeah. I can dig that. Do you like it? I like it. I like it. It's 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 interesting. It, it reminds me a lot of um, a lot of the indie kind of bands that were coming out of England at the time and that influence. Like, I think... I think you can definitely hear the influence of you know bands like The Cure and other and yeah. other bands in that, in particularly in the vocal performance as well, you know, where tunefulness isn't necessarily the most important thing in that, but the delivery, it's all about the delivery, it's all about the expression in there, and yeah, you can definitely, definitely hear that kind of stuff in there. Well, look, we're four songs in, that's yep. pretty cool, let's go with the next one, what's that, what's it called? Well, this next song, this is probably, for most people, this is the high watermark of the, the album, it's a song called Park Company, it's a Robert song, the third Robert song in a row that we've had, and uh, it's a classic, it's a really, really great song, and it's the first single from the record. Back to me 
Alright. <laughs> One of the longer fade outs of my life. <laughs> but I tell you what, it's Mike, long, it is a long fade you, out. You drink every drop though. You do. It's it's a great song and it really it lands on you from the first note, doesn't it? Bloody oath. That vibe. It's just such a it's such a it's one of those songs that just settles into that groove and that, that vibe and it just doesn't doesn't let up the whole way through. But it it's so good that you don't really mind. You don't mind that the the dynamics between between sections in the song aren't big. They're kind of they're not necessarily subtle either. Like the shift into the chorus and stuff is very dramatic, but at the same time you don't have the 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 big you know ebbs and swells of the uh, of uh, of dynamics that you often have in a lot of other pop songs. You know, like yeah. for example, sparseness in the verses and then these you know large choruses. It's it's there, but it's on a it's on a much lesser scale. But the one thing they do add is the the Prophet Five synth. <laughs> Just, you know, I'd love to hear that track on its own. Yeah, it's odd. Probably make me vomit. There's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of randomness on this song that it feels like it's just kind of thrown together, and it's I I get the sense of, um, you know, they've kind of like you know they've thrown. I'm not sure. Well, Grant plays that that guitar part, but they've essentially just gone. They've got this song and they go, Grant, we really need a guitar part. Just go into the studio and muck around. And then they just go, that was great. That was great. Whatever you did, it was great. And he just is kind of just trying to find this weird idiosyncratic single line guitar kind of part in there. And he found it and it works so well. It, it is, works really, really well. It is well. the key. Like yeah. if it's, if it's, if it wasn't for that guitar part, like that, the the, it the, the really, chord, the it chords really makes the song doesn't bloody it? oath. The chords yeah. themselves, and it's a enough. it's a great song. Like it's it's one of those great examples of the you know the, it being the sum of its parts. Like the drums are really kind of subtle. They're just but they're constant, consistent. This real like pounding kind of rhythm, but this kind of laziness about it as well that is really really great. Zoom, but boom, boom, but boom. It's really cool. And again, like I pointed out before in Bachelor Kisses, it's got those odd two four bars in there as well yeah. to throw it out. It's a strange pattern. It's like it's a fourteen beat uh, and then a like a, a a twelve beat kind of pattern the second time around. It comes through. It's it's a weird. The structure of those verses is is odd. It's it's not quite even. It'd like be... the first phrase is longer than the second phrase. So it's um. Be tough to play that song. Yeah. For mortals. Mm. <laughs> It'd be Turn tough to play. Um, and I love the uh, the guitar part in the verses. Mm. Ba, 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 yeah. ba. It's great, isn't it? Just really great mm. stuff. That that's yeah, that's my favorite. Well, you know, we haven't listened to everything, but that's my favorite song thus far. It's my oh, favorite yeah. too. It was the first single from the record, and didn't actually do that well. Uh, there's probably a number of factors contributing to that. It's pretty laid back. It's a pretty laid back vibe. It's not. It doesn't have. A lot of the, you know, that come grab you attitude, but it's a real grower. The more, I mean, the more I listen to it, the more I like it. It's really one of those songs where you don't actually get sick of it. There's always things you find in it. All of these different elements, the weirdness of that and randomness of the Prophet Five, it's it, it's almost like, you know, they kind of just, they record, they only had one track and they had five seconds, just put the put something in the background and do it, and then they kind of sat with it because it doesn't necessarily follow a regular kind of part or anything. No it's kind of just wavering all over the place, but it works really well. It kind of maintains this interest in there and this odd two, four bars and stuff in there, the six bar turnaround, all of this stuff kind of, you know, it keeps it 
keeps the momentum going forward. That unevenness. It's it's really good. I mean, to say nothing of the lyrics. The lyrics are the really lyrics are great, great too. And it's an interesting. It touches on an interesting theme that uh, Forster kind of uh, touches on a, a couple of times in in this uh, record, which is the likening of relationships to business kind of partnerships as well and and having that you know part company talking about contracts and the fine lines and all of this kind of stuff that he mentions in in the lyrics to this song and um there's been some that have suggested that this is maybe a little bit of a a riposte to um the the relationship the band had with rough trade and the ending of that i don't know if there's any truth to that to that rumor but as as a as you know, as just a, a, a reading through the lyrics will attest, it's actually it, it it works really well in the way he deals with the, that metaphor and really exploring that. There's a lot of really really great phrases in it, and uh, Forster's no stranger to great lyrical turn of phrase, but uh, it works really really well in this song. Yeah, great. So let's move on. What's the next one? Side B, slow slow music is the uh, the next tune, which is a Grant song. All right, bad bad time. He had a turn. <laughs> first thing that I said was that's Robert Forster singing that first verse yeah it's interesting isn't it maybe maybe Robert's uh, delivery you know of the of, of the last few songs I don't know what order any of this was recorded in but maybe that delivery that we saw on You've Never Lived uh, you know that the attitude in that delivery was having a bit of an influence on Grant but yeah it did set the first verse sounded, sounded a lot like Robert yeah I thought so but mm. of course it isn't it's Grant McLean. yeah um, I don't mind that song at all. I think it's no, pretty cool. It's good, isn't it? We were talking as we were listening about the bass guitar as well, and it's got <laughs> that. It actually changes the tone uh, in mid-song. Like he has that that picked kind of sound, a trebly. Uh, you know, the high end is turned up to really accentuate the the uh, the attack on the strings, and uh, and then when the, in the chorus. It winds the tone down, so it's you know a more of a bigger kind of sound to really accentuate the uh, the chorus. It works really well. It's it's, it's interesting. It's great. It's, an, cool. album it's, it's an album track. It's it's not necessarily uh, you know something that would make the greatest hits collection, but it works really well as a song. Um, the lyrics uh, of the two of them. This is uh, I think an interesting, well, an observation that I that I would make out of the two the two writing styles. Robert tends to be a lot more uh, have a lot more brevity in his writing than Grant does. Grant tends to really like um, expanding things in his lyrics and having a lot more 
uh, imagery and a lot more things to say in his lyrics. And you often see that characteristic. His his songs tend to be crammed with a lot more um, lyrical themes and, and the verses tend to be made up of more lines, for, uh, you know, as an obvious example, than Roberts does. Roberts tend to, you know, he'll stick, he'll stick to some very small, very concise but very powerful and sharp kind of phrases in his writing. But mm. Grant is much prepared, to, is more prepared to really expand that. Well, that's what I thought. That's probably what led me to think that um, this might be Robert Forster singing because the the the, the rapping, the, mm. the sort of semi-rapping at the start, it, it, it does have that brevity and that compactness that mm. you, you're talking about there. That's as well, and as well as the delivery, but... The phrasing is is sounded like Robert Forster, mm. um, and and it's interesting because they're still they're, they are working out how to play with two guitars. The guitars yeah. are really good. I mm. really the drums don't always work for me on this song, but they're cool as well. I mean they're just angular stuff, and it's well it it's, just feels a bit busy. In in many ways, it's the same. It's the same kind of feel that we just heard in Part Company as well. It's just sped up. It's that same kind of doom boom kind of feel. They've just kind of increased the tempo on it, and uh, it's it's a little bit straighter. It doesn't have those those two four bar turnarounds that uh, we've seen before, but uh, it's still it's still good. I like it. It does it does its job. It does its job. Mm. Good guitar playing. Yep, and a bit of the attitude that you like. Yep. What have we got next? So the next one. This is called "Draining the Pool for You." It's one of Robert's tunes. You like this one, don't you? I do like it. I like it a lot. Remembered your name, evidently you've forgotten mine You know a lot of people, I know mine Dull by work and wine I got hired, but I got tired Draining the Better prospects after 
I mean, it's it's a well-written song for one thing, but it's the the movement in between the sections in the song is what I really like. Like how it has this the snarly Robert Forster kind of verse and vocal delivery in that, and it goes into this sparse kind of pre-chorus that has builds the sense of anticipation, and then launches into that chorus where you sort of feel all the enthusiasm in the band or the, the delivery of the band and the playing will just build to that point, you know, the draining the pool for you. And then it just really lands on it. It's great. It feels like they speed up yeah, in yeah. that chorus too. Yeah. Maybe it's just playing the trick on me because Lindy Morrison is... Lindy Morrison in her, you know, um, whatever, 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 hit, how many, ever many snare hits she does... Mm they start to gallop. Once they're in the chorus, it's the same pace, but I, it's like a, I'm getting a trick played on me and it feels like they're speeding mm, up mm. in that chorus. Um, I pointed out that great lyric before. It's, yeah. you, you know, you like, you like hanging with freaks. It's not my cup of thrills. Just, yeah. and the way he, that yeah. real, really, the delivery at, on at this the is great, isn't it? It's actually really probably cool. like, considering, I think, you know, this is a really strong Robert Forster you know, record his representation on this album is yeah. really great, uh, but this is probably his best vocal delivery on the record. I yeah, think. for sure, it's man. really, really good for sure. And I think my I, this should have been a single from the record. This song, yeah, it's really great. Yeah, why not? Yeah, yeah, I could really listen to that again. That's that's one of the tracks. I you know, there's only about three tracks on this record that I'll take away with me, and that's one of them. Mm. It's it's really cool, and I didn't really, yeah, I didn't really rate it when I first listened to it. No, it's 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 really good. I I, I like the way it builds. Even the even the bridge, the the guitars, that little chiming the card, yeah. that little bit. It's really nice. It's it cool. works really well, and they've tried to do that a few times in other songs that we've heard already, and it hasn't worked as well. But it's work. It works really well in this song. And well, you know how it plays in unison though with the piano. It yeah. ends up. Mm playing in unison with the piano I wonder if it was a I wonder if it was a guitar thing first or a piano thing first because it it kind of feels more like a piano line do you know mm, what I mean mm. because yeah a very Curie kind of piano yeah line. yeah true very simple and I mean this this is the thing the go-betweens were not you know in it to for the chops they did not play fast slick guitar parts or any kind of instrumental parts there's a real sense of them being very precise in what they're trying to do and very calculated in what they're trying to do because you know they weren't exactly the best guitar players in the world but they were certainly 
I think you can count them among the most inventive for the this, this skill set that they had. They definitely tried to get the most out of the instruments that they could. Yeah, and right. It worked It worked very effectively. It's part of the, the charm of the record, you know, those idiosyncratic guitar parts. Yeah, I really like that song. Great. All right, here we go. What are we doing now? <laughs> well, here we have probably the most interesting song. And if you ever wanted to get dropped from a record label, trying to put a, a song like this on, on a record is a pretty good way to go about it, I reckon. It's, it's a song called River of Money. It's one of Grant's, and I was talking about Grant's tendency to actually want to use more words and more phrases than Robert does in his writing. He's, he's gone to town here, and we, he's gone all spoken word on us. I think we should let this <laughs> we'll, piece we'll, of art speak for we'll itself. Have a, we'll have a listen. resorted to the compass, thinking that geography might rescue him. But after one week in the Victorian Alps, he came back north, realizing that snow, which he'd never seen before, was only frozen water. I'll take you to Hollywood, I'll take you to Mexico, I'll take you anywhere the river of money flows. I'll take you to Hollywood, I'll take you to Mexico, I'll take you anywhere the river of money flows. Thank you, Grant McLennan, for that <laughs> shit sandwich. <laughs> Good God. You know, it actually took me back to the days when I used to go to poetry readings. And I'd recall one time I went to a poetry reading. I was in Perth, right? And um, it was somewhere in Northbridge. And uh, there's always cats at a poetry reading who think that it's just... They can just go up there and sit on stage and talk about their life. Mm -hmm. And I ended up standing up and going, Hey, man... We're here for some poetry. Let's have some flipping poetry. And he muttered something about, oh, there's always one dickhead that doesn't get it. But he pissed off, and I got a round of applause for that. <laughs> it takes me back. It's one of those things, like, spoken word is almost like it's the thing that you really should never think is a good idea. As soon as as soon as soon someone says, hey, I know, let's do a spoken word song, the band should probably break up there and then because it's... <laughs> It's an incredibly bad idea, and it's a very, very hard thing to pull off. There's not many people that can actually pull off can pull a narration off? of a song. I would say Lou Reed is maybe one of the people that can do it. Can Jim Morrison do it? Uh, no, Jim Morrison can't do it. All right. No. I, I, I actually don't like those Jim Morrison songs, the spoken word ones. Mm. I, I think so Lou Reed much. can do it? I, at, at a pinch, Lou Reed can do it. Um, if someone's got a really sexy voice, Serge, it's in French, but Serge Gainsbourg can, uh, yeah. can do a pretty good job of it. Can Leonard Cohen do it? Leonard Cohen could do it, but it's mainly because the lyrics are so good. I think the, the, the problem with this song, besides the monotony, I mean, if you're going to do a spoken word song, try and make the accompaniment less monotonous to actually put some variety in there, but Please. they don't do that at all. It's, it's completely monotonous. It doesn't go anywhere. As you were saying, though, the drum sound is great. It's it's one of the best drum sounds on the record, but it's not enough to kind of save a sinking ship. You know, I it's... think it's I think it's one of the best 
sounding songs on the yeah. on the record. All the instruments, even the even the you know um, buzzsaw guitar, yeah. it sounds really good. It really sounds like a good live. It's just room meandering, sound. and I think it's I just think my taste, though. With well. all with all respect to to Grant, who is a, a fine lyricist, usually these these lyrics in in the prose format just really meander more than anything else. They don't really go anywhere, and you don't really feel. Uh, attached to the story, even what he's trying to say, like you kind of drift, you drift away from it. It is not engaging enough. And there's a few spoken word songs that can actually do that. That despite that, they will actually be really engaging, and you'll you'll be attached to the story that's going on. But this is not one of them. This is uh, a Farraga, as they say in the business. Next is a, another Grant song called "Unkind and Unwise." Okay. Yeah, I think so too. It's it's while it's well, still a, while it's song. while it's still an album track. I think swapping the old way out with that would probably be a, a much better Absolutely. lineup change. Absolutely. Um, I'm gonna you know I, I hate to keep bashing Grant McLennan, but uh, look, it, it's it's nice. It's it's nice. I think the pre-chorus is more interesting than the than the yeah, chorus. I'd agree with that. I, the chorus the chorus is quite repetitive and sort of doesn't and doesn't really go anywhere. The 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 form and the structure of it, as always, is kind of is interesting. It's got that odd time thing. It's a bar yep. of three coupled with a bar of four. Yep. But I think one of the biggest issues of it is is something that um, the old way out uh, kind of suffers from. Is is that the the dynamics and the dynamic contour doesn't really change throughout the whole song? It's fa- it flatlines through the whole thing, and it's kind of it doesn't have an ebb and a flow. Like it doesn't get quiet, it doesn't get loud again in the chorus. It doesn't really have these. It's really just kind of adding in- instruments to fill out the texture a little bit in the chorus, and it's sort of not enough. It's not enough to make that chorus really stand out, and the repetitiveness is is the only. It's the same thing as the old way up, really. It's just got a repetitive chorus that just keeps singing the same phrase around and around, and it's a chorus by default. But do you know what else? Part companies like that as well, isn't yeah. that why? But but part company has a great bridge. Yeah, part. Um, but as we were saying with part company, the guitar parts uh, are really oh, what, yeah, kind of, what kind man. of make that song. You know, in all of the the melodic content that should have should be in the chorus and the lyrics. It's not there because Robert's delivering, you know, his delivery doesn't really fit that. So the guitar part is really creating that melodic contour, creating that interest. And Unkind and Unwise just doesn't have that to the same extent, and it suffers as a result of it. I think it's boring. Fair enough. 
Okay, we're on to the last song. We're on to the last song. And this the last is, song. This is the, uh, the, li- the literary referenced Man O' Sand to Girl O' Sea. The go-betweens probably prided themselves on their image as being one of the most well-read bands uh, in the, you know, the alternate artistic underground, whatever scene they happen to find themselves in or consider themselves a part of. And this is one of them. And it was the third single. And an odd choice for the third single uh, of, from the album. Uh, so, anyway, it's the last song. Great. It's a song that, I, you know, for me, I, I said this before in my criticism of the of another song on this record. It's about a minute too long. Sure, there's not there's not a lot going on for the last part of it. I mean, it's a it's a nice build, and as you uh, said, as we were listening to it, it's a nice sound. You know, it's a, it's a good sound. The band sounds really good. Great guitar solo. Yeah, but to be honest, it doesn't it doesn't it, this song does not do it for me. I, I the, the title, I think any. Any title that attempts a you know a more of a literary reference, a reference to romantic poetry, by saying "man o sand" instead of "man of sand," you know, by cutting out the you know doing the abbreviation, it's a little bit pretentious. And Forster is no stranger to being pretentious. He kind of you know his image is one of being the pretentious literary nerd, essentially. Uh, Robert, if you're listening, love your work. But at at the same time. I, it just doesn't it doesn't grab me enough and the kind of the 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 pleading in the song it's sort of it's it doesn't really grab me at all it he's too cool for yeah, that it and... doesn't it doesn't really work I wish he'd taken that out you know the I want you back bits of the, I wish he'd oh, taken yeah. that out I think it'd be a much better song without those parts uh, I I am mystified I know I like I know why it would it, would, it was chosen as the third single because it's got that energy to it uh, but at the same time I think Draining the Pool for You would have been a much better choice because it's a much better song. It, it probably really would have uh, caught on a, you, lot, a lot better. You know exactly what you're in for yeah. from the start of this song. Yeah, it, there's not a lot of variance. Great. And there's not a lot right. of variance in, this, in the structure either. Like the chorus and the verse have the same chord pattern. They have the same structure. So there's not a lot of variance in there. And it's sort of, it just doesn't really go anywhere to me. And, you know, it's a real shame that the last three tracks 
on the album, I kind of like that because the first, I mean, with the, maybe the exception of The Old Way Out, the first six songs are actually so strong. Seven, if you include Draining the Pool for you as well, are pretty strong. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, it's a real shame that the last three, kind of, it just kind of peters out a little bit. You know, we do this a lot, Chris. Like we 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 pick transitional albums. Yeah, and yeah. this is our. Well, this is the whole idea, you know. And this was a transitional record, you know. It was at the same time. It was their. It was their. You know, attempt and to well, not. You know, on their on their part by by many you know accounts by their own accounts. There's a few interviews online that they've done where they've you know they said they never really intended to be a commercial band. I think they wanted commercial success, but it wasn't something that they really wanted, you know, to, to put on their on their resumes as having, you know, uh, being a being seen as a commercial hit-making band, you know. They, they were more interested in their arty stuff there, and their interests really lay in that. You know, they were, you know, amateur philosophers by, by all accounts, rather than actually being commercial songwriters. That wasn't where their, where their heart really lay. So, um, it's but it's interesting as a, as a transition. You were saying that before. It's interesting as a transition record in that, they're sort of trying that on. The production from John Brand, who is a hardcore commercial a pop producer with a great pedigree in that area, is trying to push them in that area. But at the same time, they're resisting that as well. And it's sort of like it's a transition between going to finding that balance that they found and, and on the rightly acclaimed 16 Lovers Lane, which is you know seen as being their best record, and rightly so, as as them finding that that real commercial balance in their sound, and them not really getting it here, you know. Yeah. What do they want to do? Like here, what do they want to do? What sort of album would they want to have made? Well, it's it's hard to know, but based on interviews that they've had, and I, you know, that uh, where I'm able to find online, and I, you know, give credit to uh, an old friend of mine, Steve Bell from Brisbane, for writing a pretty good review of this album as well. That's online too, but they, you know, they were really sort of. I guess at, at the time they made this, they were in two minds about going with John Brand as a producer. They actually wanted to go back to an original producer. They had a couple of albums previous to get more of the 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 energy that they they thought was present in those early uh, recordings that they made. And something that was simpler that they would record in London that they didn't have this whole extravagant you know chateau in France they were recording at. And uh, yeah, something that that was a little bit. Uh, a little bit simpler and uh, a simpler approach to songwriting rather than being necessarily putting a lot of arty kind of twists on what they were doing is actually having something more straightforward that they could put more of their own personality into their songs, which is something I think you definitely see from this point on in their, in their songwriting. There's definitely, there's Robert songs and there's Grant songs in from this album onwards. Uh, and it's very, you know, the personality is very infused in their, in their writing. And after this, you know, Robert talks about simplification. Yeah. After this record, he made a conscious, a conscious. Uh, there was a conscious change in the band to go back to sort of more four four stuff. Mm. Um, after this record, so yeah. I, I've forgotten how did this how did this record fare? Uh, it was okay, but not not particularly well. Uh, and the the band were not very happy with it. So uh, it, none of the singles did particularly well. Bachelor Kisses did the best out of any of them. Uh, and so the go-betweens kept their status of being, you know, a commercially unsuccessful but critically acclaimed kind of band. And, and, but, you know, and songs like Part Company and Bachelor Kisses 
Draining the Pool are definitely well-loved songs uh, in the go-betweens canon these days. Yeah. But having said that, it also features probably the least-liked song in the go-betweens canon, which is River of Money. It's a pretty dismal song. Anyway, that's that's that. Spring that's Hill Fair. And incidentally, in the, the title of the album, Spring Hill Fair, for a band that's actually an expatriate band, a band that moved away from Brisbane because ostensibly didn't like Brisbane, didn't feel like Brisbane was the, the, you know, the cultural haven that they really required to be a band. And back in those days, in the height of the Bjorki-Peterson government, it really was not either. It was not a good place to be for live music. And despite, you know, it's in spite of that, that it actually managed to produce so many good bands. But, uh, you know, it's, it's actually a fairly nice, you know, nod back to their heritage. The Spring Hill Fair taking was a, you know, a fair that took place in Brisbane. And Spring Hill was a suburb that all the band members had lived in at some point. It's an inner city suburb that's, re- that's very, very close to the city. And back in the day, it was quite a cheap suburb to live in. So it was common for a lot of students and, uh, you know, artisans, bohemians to find themselves living there. But of course, now in this day and age, it's got some of the highest, uh, you know, real estate prices in town. There you go. Yeah. That's what happens. Huh? Um, uh, so, look, you know, I've got to be honest, mate. This album's not going to stay with me. It just... That's it, fair enough. It just isn't. It will with me. I mean, I'm a, I'm a go-betweens fan, so I like all of their catalogue. But at, at the same time, uh, I, I like this for its status as a transition record, but also because it contains... Are some of my favourite songs, and it's weird to like a whole album because you like some songs on it as opposed to all the songs. But that's the way it should be, though. I reckon yeah. because there's so much compartmentalising of our music nowadays, where things are broken down into tiny pieces. We've all bought an album, yeah, that we've really liked two songs of, and you yeah. just make the commitment. Yeah, I, I think so. It. But yeah, I, I I like it a lot. I I think it's even though even though it has some low points. I think it's unfairly maligned as being a, a miss record, which it is generally kind of called. So, I, I, I think it's it's should be you know labelled hit and miss at the very bare minimum. What I I don't think you know I, I don't not like it because of its low lights. I don't like it because I just don't. It just doesn't have enough character for me. It doesn't have enough. It doesn't have enough soul for me, and I. Yeah, I, 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 I want more ego in there. No, anyway, look, they are what they are. Yeah. They are what they are, the go-betweens. And it's just, obviously, this, not my bag. Well, that's fair enough. That's that, eh? Yeah, I, I like it, I'll, I'll, and I'll stick with it. I'll still get, you know... I, lyrically alone, I think it's it's really great. Sure. There's a lot of great lyrics on it. Um, this was the one we needed to have. I mean, I'm looking forward to the one where we're really on opposite sides of the fence. But but I'm no. I'm, but this is this is what it's all about. That's what it's about. Then. Yeah. And that's that, dude. I'll that's that what, for another for another for another month. Yeah. And we're going to be back next month. It's going to be, gee, I don't know what it's going to no. be. I would normally say it's going to be a, an international record. But gosh, we just don't know. We don't know. But thanks for joining us again. I hope you've appreciated it, or at least found some new appreciation for a band that you maybe you don't know much about or if you do know them that you know maybe this discussion has you know peaked some thought in your in your minds about it and let us know one way or another we know you're out there yeah <laughs> all right man feel free okay take it easy brother. thanks rowan catch you soon i'll see you again all right